1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 18. I think we're actually going to need to do this twice um, because there's so much in here uh, doctrinally about this, this idea of the rapture that um, we probably need to talk, with, talk more about it next time. Um, today I just want to look at it um, just on the face of it for what Paul's main intent was. He didn't actually uh, intend for us to spend a lot of time arguing about this idea of the rapture. The, the title of the message today is Comforting Words. These are supposed to be comforting words from Paul to the Thessalonians. Let me get you guys up to speed. First Thessalonians chapter 4, as we come to verse 13, Paul is in full-on preaching, or not preaching, but teaching mode. Before he's uh, the first few chapters, he was saying, well, you guys are doing great at this. You're doing wonderful at this. Let me exhort you in this. Let me encourage you in this. And now he's He's come to the place where he's saying, you guys, okay, we need to clear this up. This idea, uh, the, the, the notion, um, the idea that these, these folks have died, and now what do we do? Uh, the Thess- Thessalonians were doing a lot of things right. We've seen that as we've gone through. Um, and it's amazing because Paul had only been with them for about three weeks before he was run out of town by persecution. He didn't leave because he was scared. That's not like Paul. He left to protect this church so that it wouldn't be decimated before it even begun. So after, after three weeks, he's already taught them so much. Chapter 4 that we've been looking at, Paul has been saying, in the light of Jesus' imminent return. He'd, we know that he taught them about Jesus' imminent return because he says in chapter 4, in light of that, he says you can excel even more. You can be even better. You can become rich in your faith. We talked about that last, last week. You can stay. You should stay morally pure. You should strive to live a quiet life. You should mind your own business. You should work hard. Do all these things, Paul says, so that you might walk Beautifully, it says, properly, but, but when you translate it, it says that you would walk, have an attractive walk before people around you so that they'll understand, wow, Jesus is real and he's making an impact in your life. He says, because the time is short. In other words, Paul says, these are ways that you can have a good witness. Now, today in verse 13, Paul wants to clear up this confusion about the return of the Lord. Apparently, now, he's been gone. We, we don't know exactly, but we think that at the time that he writes this letter, he's already sent Timothy back to check up on them, and Timothy has already returned. So we figure this is probably nine months, a year, maybe something like that, since Paul last saw them. Apparently in that time, some of the believers in this church, Thessalonica, had died. And then there comes the question from the other believers. What happens to them? I mean, Jesus hasn't come back yet. What, what happens? Do, do they miss out on the return of Christ? Do they miss out on the rapture? That's the issue that Paul will be addressing now today in verse 13. He says, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says to the church, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. All right. The word ignorant there is agnoio. It's the same place we get the word agnostic. So the next time you hear someone say they're agnostic, you can hear what they're really saying is, I'm ignorant. It, it truly means ag, ag, agneo. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but what it means is uh, the, the prefix is a means without gnoio, which is gnosis, knowledge, without knowledge. Paul is saying, I don't want you guys to be without knowledge. Now, maybe some of you are saying, wait a second. Some of the smartest people I know, some of the smartest people on television and other places are agnostic. Well, that may be true, but 
I could also tell you that some of the smartest people in the world were agnostic and are no longer agnostic because they actually pursued the truth and then they changed their position. Listen to this. This was last year. The Associated Press recently reported that Professor Antony Flew of England now accepts the existence of God. That was newsworthy because Professor Flew had been in the world's leading intellectual champion for atheism for more than half a century. He changed his mind on the basis of recent scientific developments. When asked if his admirers might be upset in his newfound belief, he reaffirmed his commitment to Aristotle's principle, follow the evidence wherever it leads. This is a guy who, he still, as far as I know, doesn't read the Bible. He's not actively pursuing God, but he's followed the evidence. He says, Look, this, this is where it leads. Of course, Professor Flew is not the first atheist to have changed his mind. The meeting in 1950, where he presented his most famous paper on atheism, was chaired by a former atheist. His name was C.S. Lewis, the, the author of Mere Christianity, a book that is still being published and persuading atheists to change their minds and hearts. And there's Josh McDowell. There's all sorts of guys who used to be atheists or agnostics, meaning I, I don't know, but <clears throat> here's my question. If you're an agnostic, meaning I don't have knowledge, if you stay agnostic, whose fault is that? If you are agnostic, ignorant, Paul says, if there's even a remote possibility that there really is a God and that you will answer to him, but you choose to remain ignorant, to ignore the Bible, to ignore the historical evidence, to ignore the courage of the martyrs throughout the ages... How else do you describe that but choosing to ignore? You hear what I'm saying? I don't, I don't see how anybody can be an agnostic and stay that way and not feel like, wow, I guess I really should be checking into this. I should be reading the Bible. Paul says, I don't want you guys, the Thessalonians, to be without knowledge. Paul says, I want to make sure that you have understanding. Now, he's not talking about the faith in general. He's talking at this point about one particular issue. I don't want you to be without knowledge concerning what? Regarding what? Verse 13 again. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul's not, here, not talking about those who have uh, fallen asleep, sawing logs, catching Z's. He, he actually uses this term, falling asleep or asleep, three times in this passage. He uses it to refer to death. See, that's how they referred to death in the New Testament, the New Testament church. Now, like Paul, I don't want you, I don't want me to be ignorant on this subject. So first, the first thing we need to do is make sure we talk a little bit about what Paul is not saying. Paul is not referring to soul sleep. You ever heard that? There's a, a doctrine, an idea that the soul, when you die, just sleeps. That your soul goes into a state of suspended animation, if you will, till the time of the rec resurrection. Like, like God puts you in his big cryogenic freezer until it's time to resurrect you. The Bible doesn't support that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, same guy who's writing this, he says, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Do you hear that? In other words, he's saying... You're only going to be one of two places if you're a Christian. You're going to be either in your body or you're going to be with the Lord. Absent with the body means to be present with the Lord. Luke 23, if you're still not convinced that there's not, this soul sleep thing is erroneous. When Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross, do you remember what he said? He said, today, 
you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, you know, you're going to take a 2,000-year dirt nap, and then you'll be with me in paradise. This is important to know this, this idea that soul sleep is, is bogus because if you've lost a loved one, you need to know that they're not in some Star Trek tube, right? If you've lost a loved one and they're a believer, the Bible says they are with Jesus. And the Bible says, we sang it this morning, in his presence is fullness of joy. If you've lost someone who's a believer, they are with Jesus, and in his presence is fullness of joy. Those, that per- person you're thinking of is experiencing joy to the fullest at this moment. So, the Bible does not support the idea of soul sleep. And yet, Paul and all the early believers, you can go through the New Testament, that's what they called it. They called it sleep. This, this thing called death. Now, why would that be? I mean, what does Paul mean here? Well, he's talking about the physical body. Your physical body. The best way to describe death, as we know it, is the separation of the soul from the physical body. Right? It's when your, your mortal body breaks down and your soul says, I'm out of here. The soul goes immediately, if you're a Christian, goes immediately to be with the Lord. And the body, for lack of a better word, sleeps. The word sleep in verse 13 here literally means to lie down, to be buried, to quietly cover some spot. That's what your body does. It just lies down, quietly covers some spot. That's what's referring to your body. But you guys know, hopefully you know, that's not the real you. That's not the real me. Your body is just the outer casing of the real you. Your body's like the spacesuit you have to wear on this planet, right? To survive, to, to be able to express yourself to someone else in this, on this planet, it's like a, a shell. It's just the outer shell. And when you die, it lies down, it's buried, it decays. Look, if, if the Lord should tarry and he doesn't come back before I die, and you guys are all sitting at my funeral... Um, this is an aside. I don't, I, just in case Lisa's listening, um, I don't really want to. I don't really want to open casket. I want to close casket. It's like I don't want you guys staring at that shell anyway, right? But but when you go by the casket, you can say, uh, "See, there's Doug." But it's really that's just the shell. The nuts went to be with the Lord. <laughs> See, Jesus said to Martha in John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And he says, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha, do you believe this? Um, What he's saying here is, look, if you believe in me, Jesus says, you may die physically, but you will live again. You will never die spiritually. So the body sleeps and the soul then goes to be immediately with the Lord. So Paul here refers to those who have died as asleep. It's interesting, the word cemetery originally meant like dormitory, apartment. I was in a dorm once, it's probably about the same size, I guess. So even though soul sleep is not correct, sleep is a good descriptive word from our perspective for death because it implies that it's a temporary thing. Matter of fact, it's such a good word for death that Jesus used it. 
Jesus talked about sleep. It was in this same uh, spot in the Bible, John chapter 11. Jesus gets word of his friend Lazarus being sick. You remember that? And it says, because he loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary, because he loved them, he waited two days. That's odd. He loved them, so he waited two days. Instead of, you would think that Jesus would go immediately to heal this guy. But he loved them and he wanted to show them something. So Jesus waits and he finally says, two days later he says to his disciples, turns to his, his buddies and says, Lazarus sleeps. And they're like, okay, well, that's good. I mean, if he's getting a good night's sleep, then he'll, he'll be healthy. That's great. And Jesus said, no, you don't get it. He had to, he had to spell it out like, like Paul had to for us. He says, no, he's dead. I say that he sleeps, but he's dead. He says, and I'm going to show you something. So they go back to Judea. See, Jesus isn't confused about Lazarus. He knew that Lazarus was dead. But he was preparing to send his disciples and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Lazarus and us a message about death. You know what the message is? I have overcome the grave. I've defeated death. Jesus said, I can wake Lazarus out of death the same as just waking him up out of a nap. With Jesus, see, the permanency, that whole permanency, the finality of death evaporates. And in case you haven't read the story, Lazarus was dead. I mean, he was good and dead. He had been in the grave four days. That's at the point where even the Jews would say, okay, after four days, it can't happen because that's when decay sets in. Martha said it this way. When, when Jesus says, okay, take the, the stone off, she's like, in the old King James, she says, no, Lord, he stinketh. It's four days. This is going to smell bad. Don't do this. He was dead. He was good and dead. The munchkins would say he was really quite sincerely dead. But Jesus says, look, I know he's dead, but it's not permanent. With me, he says, I can take this death thing away. It's not permanent. John 11, verse 25. Again, let me read it to you. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus gives two ideas. He says, if you die... Like, if I don't come back before you die, you'll live again. But there'll be some of you, somebody in, in the age of history, there will be a group of people, and it could be us, who don't even die. He says, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You guys get it? I know you do. Some of you, hopefully, all of you. With Jesus, there is hope. When your believing friends and your loved ones die, they don't die. They just move on. John Simpson told me, wait, yeah, I've never used your, both your names together, so it sounded odd to me. Um, just call him John. He told me, he said, when, when people die, I, I like to say like they got promoted. A young, young business owner was opening a new branch office, and a friend decided to send a floral arrangement for the grand opening. When the friend arrived at the opening, he was appalled to find that the wreath at this grand opening said, rest in peace. Angry, he complained to the florist. After apologizing, the florist said, look, look at it this way. Somewhere a man was buried underneath a wreath today that said, good luck in your new location. <laughs> Completely changes how you look at death. 
It's not death. It's a relocation. It's moving on. Verse 13 says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. These are the, this is the reason Paul's writing the letter. It's like, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. Now, let me make sure you understand. Some people will read that and say, well, we're not supposed to sorrow. It doesn't say that. It's okay to cry. It's good to cry. Jesus wept at Lazarus's funeral before he changed it. It's good to cry. It's okay to cry. But what this says is you don't need to sorrow the way unbelievers sorrow. Those who have no hope. We needn't sorrow like those who have no hope. See, the last couple of weeks, we've been saying, haven't we, how God wants us to be peculiar people, and we are, right? He wants us to be different. The quickest way to find out if someone's different is to watch them or basically go to their funeral to see, see what kind of mood is there at the funeral. There will, there will be weeping. There will be tears. But at a Christian's funeral, there will be this intermingling of tears and joy. I've, I've only done one funeral as a pastor so far. You guys are going to think I'm crazy, but it was fun. That's odd, isn't it? It was a great experience. It was awesome. Everyone in the room, the, the, the man's name, some of you knew him, his name was Dan. Everyone in the room knew that Dan had not lived a perfect life. And yet, I was able to tell them, some of them who hadn't seen him for years, that he had turned his imperfect life over to Jesus, who had lived a perfect life in his place. Which meant, I was able to stand up and give hope to a whole room full of hopeless people. It wasn't because Dan's life was great, but because he traded lives, if you will, with Jesus. And Dan was smart enough to accept that free gift. In that room full of people that were aching for hope, I could actually give them hope. See, Jesus brings hope even in death. But I can't imagine having to officiate at a funeral for someone who didn't know Jesus. Jesus, verse 13 says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, lest... Uh, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. See, if you, if you want to know the difference that Jesus makes, go to a funeral of an unbeliever and go to a funeral of a believer. For, for an unbeliever, I don't know what I... I'm sure I will be put in that spot someday. But I don't know what I'd say. You can only talk about their past. You can only say... Well, that person was great, man. Remember the memories? You, you can have a little bit of joy there. But then you can't talk about their present. You can't talk about your, their future. That would not be, it wouldn't be helpful. It wouldn't be nice. You can't do these things. But for the believer, you actually want to talk about their present. You want to talk about what they're experiencing right now, the joy of the Lord. And you want to talk about their future, where they're going to be forever. I shared this with some of you guys. There's a pastor, Calvary Chapel pastor, in uh, over in is Oregon, I think. Um, it's Applegate Fellowship is the, the church that he's there. His name is John Corson. This guy, he lost his wife uh, many years ago uh, through a tragic accident, I think it was. And then I know um, about 10 years ago, he lost his daughter, his teenage daughter. And 
you would look at somebody like that and you would think, man, aren't you bitter with God? Aren't you upset? But if I could, I'd have each one of you guys listen to the memorial service that he did for his daughter. You listen to that tape and, and you'd hear what I'm talking about, that there's this joy, this peace that you can't put a finger on, you can't explain it, but it's there and it's because of the hope that Jesus brings into that life. See, this verse doesn't say that we should bottle up our emotions and that we shouldn't grieve. But if you know Jesus, what this says is we needn't grieve as those who have no hope. See, at a, at a believer's funeral, hopefully at my funeral, you guys will grieve. Maybe not. Maybe you'll rejoice. But hopefully you'll grieve, but it'll be because you'll miss me. That's the question. When, when my believing friends pass on, I'm going to grieve because I'll miss them, but I'm not grieving for them. It's like they've moved far away for a long time, but I don't have to grieve as if I'll never see them again, according to the scriptures here. We don't sorrow for a believer because he's been promoted. Paul says, I don't want you guys to have sorrow as those, those who have no hope. Look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. There's that word sleep again. Now, Paul is speaking to believers, and he says, look, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we do. In other words, this isn't, for for these guys, this isn't a, well, if you believe in Jesus, these, these guys have settled it. He's saying, look, since you do, since you do believe this in Jesus, doesn't it make sense that God would also resurrect you when the time comes? He says, will bring with him, that is Jesus, those who sleep in Jesus. Um. As surely as, as Jesus was raised from the dead and the evidence was overwhelming, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about all the evidence that Jesus actually raised from the dead. More than 500 witnesses saw him at the time. And when Paul wrote it, he said, and some of these are still living. They, they're not living now, but they were when he wrote it. And that would have been pretty risky for him to say, hey, check with these 500 guys, uh, when they all would have said, I don't know what Paul's talking about. He says, as surely as you know that Jesus actually rose from the dead, you can also know that he will come back and he will, the, the, the folks that you guys are worried about won't miss it. That's the whole message here, right? Now look at verse 15. These are comforting words. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Paul says, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, I got this message from Jesus and I'm passing it on. It says, your believing friends, Thessalonians, those who've died before you, they're at at no disadvantage when it comes to the rapture. When it comes to Jesus' return, he says, they're not at a disadvantage. And what follows now in verse 16 is really the most quoted scripture on the subject of the rapture. And that's why we're going to need to talk about it again next time. We couldn't cover all this in this time unless you guys want to stay here till 2 or 3 in the afternoon, maybe. No. I don't want to give this short shrift, so, so we're going to really dig in next time. But just let the glory of this scene soak into you. Read, let me, as we read these words, actually picture this in your head. Verse 16, for the Lord himself, first of all, right there. It says the Lord himself will descend. He's not going to send a butler. He's not going to send a chauffeur. It's the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, 
and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul says, and this is the point of this, this message. Paul says, those are the people that you're worried about that have died since I last saw you, they're not going to miss it. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first. He says, their physical bodies, he says, their, spirit, their soul is already with the Lord, right? But their physical bodies will have front row seats, if you will. He says, they'll be the first ones to rise. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That word is harpazo. If we were to tr- uh, transliterate it into the Latin, it becomes raptus, which is where we get the word rapture. We'll talk more about that next time. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's fantastical. Is that a word? When you think about it, actually picture that in your head. The, the word harpazo means to be snatched away with force. This is an incredible scene. Think about this. Put yourself in the, picture, in, the, in the middle of this picture. You hear today, could be today by the way, you hear an incredible shout. You hear a mighty voice. You hear the sound of a trumpet calling. You look up and you see the Lord in the air and you see people launching out of graves like missiles. And these are not like zombies, okay? These are wide awake, joyful people that you see and you're like, hey, wait, wait for me. And then suddenly you notice your own body launching toward the Lord. That's what this says. It doesn't say anything less amazing than that. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. It's an incredible scene, isn't it? It's hard to, ha- to wrap your head around. It is for me. It's so supernatural that it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe at all, but when it really gets difficult to believe is that it could happen today, right? It's hard to think. This could really happen today. Now, I'm not saying that it will happen today, but I am saying it could happen today. We should always be living with that thought in our minds. You know why? Because we'd be in good company. Paul did. Look at this verse 17 again. He says, then we. In other words, Paul included himself in the people that he expected to be present at the rapture. He says, he says now the folks that have died already... I've told you about them, he says, but then we'll, we'll be caught up as well. We'll catch up with, with the, the other dead folks, right? Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air. The point is that Paul, 2,000 years ago, lived in expectancy of the imminent return of Christ. And so did the Thessalonians. Matter of fact, we've talked about it. That's how they became such a great church. They live their lives looking up. They live their lives expecting this really could be the day. You guys ever heard that phrase? Oh, he's too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. That phrase? It's not true. In fact, it's the opposite. The people who are the most heavenly minded, who actually have their eye on heaven, are the ones who are the most earthly good. Think about it. All the issues that we've learned in First Thessalonians. Uh, sexual purity. Um, living a quiet life. Being, minding your own business. Working hard with your hands. Doing the things that God wants you to do become a lot 
more important if you think that he could be back today. If you're heavenly minded, you become extremely earthly good. Verse 18, he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. See, this, we, we probably will be getting into some of this the theology, if you will, next time. But this, the main point of the scripture is that we comfort one another with these words. These words are meant to be comforting to believers. It really is comforting, isn't it? It should be. To know, if, if you know and you trust in Jesus, this is a really comforting thing. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How comforting is it to know that death is defeated? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 says this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, there will, there will come a time... In, in the ages, when, when a group of people don't actually die, could be today, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Every Christian will be changed, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. I'm so thankful I'm going to be changed. A better model. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall we shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Here it is. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? See, talking about those funerals. You go to a Christian funeral. And that's a lot of times that's what you'll walk out going, death, where is your sting? I mean, it, there's still a, an ache, but the sting, that hopelessness is gone. These are comforting words, but it does all depend on one other word. One word in the middle of this text, verse 14, hinges on the word if. Back to this, back to this verse. Now, again, these Thessalonians, for them, this if was really since. But for some in this room, the word if could be truly if. Here's what I mean. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. See, all of these are really comforting words only if you truly believe in Jesus. And this doesn't mean just an intellectual belief. The word believe there in verse 14, it actually means to put your total trust in to put your trust in when if you've been here for a while what we say is to hand the keys over to jesus if you if you hand the keys over to jesus you give him full control of your life he says even so god will include you in this wonderful experience and you'll have an eternal security in heaven john eleven twenty five. again jesus said to her i am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me Though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He's saying these words to Martha, and he finishes with this question. So, do you believe this? That's the question that Jesus asks of every person throughout the ages. That's the question that he's asking right now. Jesus says of himself, this is an amazing claim. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I can save you from death. And then he asked the question, do you believe this? 
Do you believe what Jesus says about himself enough to surrender to him? Do you believe? If you do, all of these things apply. If you don't, they don't. My prayer then is that for everyone in this room, that you can claim these comforting words. Here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, they are meant to be comforting. But they can only be comforting if you'll surrender to him.